Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Genesis of Startups, where we interview brilliant minds in entrepreneurship to explore what it's really like to start a business. Our guest today is Wei Yeo, CEO and co-founder of Umbo and 2019 Social Entrepreneur of the Year. He is also the founder of OIC Cambodia, a non-for-profit in Cambodia helping develop the profession of speech therapy. Welcome to the show, Wei. Thanks, William. Thanks so much for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're currently doing with Umbo? Sure. Yeah, so my background is physiotherapy. I worked as a physio for a couple of years. I did do a little bit of a stint in rural Australia where I was quite surprised that people were waiting so long for really basic services that we take for granted in the city. And then I also went overseas for a while and I volunteered in Vietnam and I studied Mandarin in China. I worked in China for a bit and then I ended up in Cambodia. As you mentioned, there was this issue with the lack of speech therapy. And what I wanted to do was to create something that was meaningful and where the charity would focus on the end result of what they were trying to deliver rather than the charity itself. And so one of the key parts of that is to make sure it's run by local people. And after four years, I handed off the leadership to a local Cambodian team and then came back to Australia. And then Umbo was really an opportunity where that situation for people in rural communities hadn't really improved. There were still long wait lists for services like speech therapy, occupational therapy, physiotherapy, up to 18 months. And so what we do at Umbo is we help connect these people, often children, with the right kind of services online, and we try and cut down these wait times to hopefully as little as one week. Wow. So the idea is to make speech therapy more accessible and faster. Yeah. So if you think about the example where a child is picked up at the age of four in a preschool, which is very common, and there's something kind of going on with the communication of this child, if that child gets on a wait list and waits that 18 months that I mentioned, and then they've got to have a bit of time, of course, for the effect of the therapy to kick in, by the time they're improving, they can be well into the school year, six or seven, that kind of stage. And, and by then it's too late. We know that the research says that kids under the age of five improve the best. So every week that we wait for them to receive the service, we're actually sending them to a very poor outcome in terms of their future. And that's why the urgency of the therapy is really important. Yeah, definitely. Before you mentioned that, the aim of the startup was to raise up the community itself. So in a way, it's solving the underlying problem. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a, it's a really difficult thing to identify in each case. And I mean, I mentioned in Cambodia that there's a temptation, I think, to look at problems and try and solve them from a symptom point of view. And the problem with that is that the help that you give, particularly in countries like Cambodia, where it's often originating from overseas, it just doesn't end. So we have people that are on this hamster wheel of continually coming in and out of Cambodia and doing bits of pieces of work, which obviously does have some effect, but it's not as effective as when you say, we're going to stop doing it at some point. So that was a key feature of that charity. I think with the work that we're doing now with Umbo, it's, it's really important that we think about not just solving problems at a symptom level, and what that means is we actually look at it from a structural point of view and we say, how do we reduce the inequality in terms of power between, let's say, rural and urban communities? You know, what we do right now is we, we hire therapists and we essentially deploy the services out online into rural communities. But you could argue that that's not actually changing anything structurally because it's keeping mm. all of that knowledge and power 
and money in the urban communities. So one of our challenges is to look at that and go, okay, how are we actually going to change structurally so that urban communities and rural communities are on par with each other? Yeah. So it's not just alleviating the symptoms, but trying to change the underlying structure. That's right. And I, and I, I kind of go back to my original training as a physio, which is great because I only, I only did physio for two years. So, I mean, you might look at that from an outside point of view and go, wow, four years of study just to work for two years, what a waste. But I will say <laughs> one of the things that I did take away from it is the idea of symptoms and root causes of the problem. And it's very easy to play in the symptom area as a physio and as an entrepreneur. You know, so as a physio, that would be I'm going to apply ice because it takes the pain away and takes away some of the inflammation. But actually, what's the root underlying cause of that inflammation in the first place? Well, often it's exercise. That's going to that's going to fix it. You know, so I think the same lens can be taken to our work from a social point of view. What's the root underlying cause of this inequality, and can we get anywhere near to trying to address that? I'm interested to hear about how you went about discovering the, the root cause of the problem because, of course, as someone who is coming in looking from an external perspective, it's, um, sometimes we may get the, get the you know, impression that the root problem might be this from, you know, this is based on our education and our experience, but mm. um, sometimes the locals might say the root cause might be a different problem. I think particularly for Umbo, it's fair to say we haven't worked out what that root cause is. So we're still working out. But then again, we've only been going at it for three years. So that's okay. With OIC in Cambodia, it, it's not as simple as saying, let's just ask local people what they think the root cause is, because that's being naive about all the existing power structures that already exist. For example, let's say we're going to go to a village in Cambodia and say, what are your greatest needs? You'd be pretty much guaranteed that we need more accessibility for people with disabilities is not going to feature there, right? Because mm. those people don't even get a foot in the door in terms of town meetings and that kind of stuff. It's all hidden. So it can be quite complex. But I think the key thing is that you, you look and integrate all of that information with looking at it from a systems point of view and you're looking at it from a, a, a real bird's eye view and looking around at how all these factors in, this, in the system influence each other. And then you make a judgment call based on that. Yeah, absolutely. So, wait. one of the biggest advices that you recommend for any startup founder out there is to do it your way. Could you elaborate a little bit on what you meant by that? And no pun intended with my own name, William. Um, just, <laughs> I thought that might be something that I got. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's interesting. There's a, there's a book called Regrets of the Dying, which is written by an Australian nurse who works in palliative care and works with a lot of people that are uh, unfortunately, of course, dying from different diseases. And she talks about these very common threads of regrets. And I remember number one is I wish my I wish I had the courage to live my life rather than someone else's version of my life. And I think when you're when you're starting a startup, it's very similar. You know, when you're doing anything that's your own, it's very similar. It's very tempting to try and create something that is someone else's version of that rather than what you see as the version. And it's it's really tempting to do that because of course you you sort of bound by a lot of rules you know there, there's capitalism as one rule or there's what the investors want as another rule or what the customers think that they need but but trying to break outside of that mold as much as possible i think that actually results in more interesting work first of all but potentially more meaningful work as well so there have been temptations i think for us a really good example is where we've we've been told you know you need to do all this stuff to help you to scale right now but frankly, we weren't really at a level or a stage where we were able to scale. So we pushed back on that quite a lot. And then hopefully what that means is long-term, 
we're creating something that's more meaningful. Where would you draw the line between just trying to persist in, in what you think is your way and neglecting valuable advice? Mm. It's, it's a really, really tough question to answer and there's no right or wrong answer. So your role as an entrepreneur, and I'd argue as a human being, is to filter in advice that you think is really valuable and filter out advice that you don't think is valuable. I remember when, particularly when I started OIC in Cambodia, I had experts in inverted commas in the field who literally laughed down the phone line at me at what I was trying to achieve. And they said, there is no way that is possibly going to happen. Now, of course, I personally use that as motivation. There's no issue with that. But if I'd listened to them, then maybe some of the dreams that I'd had would have been crushed at that early stage. Just, I guess there's a, there's a wonderful quote, which I love, and I've got it in a few places in my house on my phone and things. It's by George Bernard Shaw. And he says, the reasonable, I'll, he says man, but I'll use the word person. I think it's better. The reasonable person conforms to the world around him. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but the unreasonable man, a person expects the world to conform to, to him or to them. You know, so therefore all progress depends on the unreasonable man. And I find that when people are saying to me, you know, you're being unreasonable about what you want to do, that I kind of come back to this quote and I go, actually, but that's where change happens by being unreasonable and by saying, you know, there is a better way to do this that actually helps more people. And so, you know, going against the grain sometimes could definitely create that progress in, in the world. Although I'm still not really sh- uh, sure I understand, what is the methodology you use to, to filter? Because I know that you mentioned that, you know, it's our tasks not only as entrepreneurs, but also as people to, to filter in the advice. So how do you go about filtering advice which you think you should follow and advice that you think that it's, it could be safe to disregard? It, it To me, it all comes back to value. So I really follow the approach, which is, talked about in acceptance commitment therapy, which is a type of therapy which is sort of the mirror of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is has been around in Western countries longer and ACT is coming in. But ACT talks about this approach where you work out what your values are and then you make sure your life is aligned to that and you're making decisions based on that. And it really goes and talks about goals as well, but it says goals are not as important because goals are fleeting they can change, you know. So, for example, let's use a silly one. A goal for someone might be I want to own a Lamborghini by the age of 25. And um, then they get to 25 and they get the Lamborghini and all of a sudden they feel hollow. Or they get to 25 and they don't get the Lamborghini and they're disappointed. They're two possible outcomes. Then you go, well, what's the, what's the value that sits behind that goal? And you might say, oh, it's freedom. You know, they want to have a sense of freedom. Well, maybe there are ways for them to exhibit that value in their daily life that doesn't involve the $500,000 car. You know, maybe there are other ways to go about doing it. So I think in the sense of looking, checking in with your values around how people say to do things in startup world, it's very easy to do things that will give you quick gains, but maybe are against your values. So I think it's really being very honest about that. So it's just sort of a values-driven approach. Does Yeah, and does it, does it sit right with you? And, and I think also, you know, hopefully in life, we surround ourselves with people that are aligned with us in terms of values. So really having those people to check um, certain decisions up against and getting a feel of what they think in all honesty as well to make sure it's not just you that are, you know, you're not flying, flying blind. Yeah, so it just prevents that sort of tunnel vision and allows you to gain a holistic perspective from the external as well. Yeah, that's right. And, and there's another, another resource which I'll mention, which is a book by a lady called Janine Garner. Uh, she's Australian, wonderful 
writer, wonderful person, great book called It's Who You Know. And she talks about the 12 different types of people that you need to surround yourself with, particularly as an entrepreneur, in order to succeed. And they're not, it's not just about having a mentor, for example. So there's different roles like connectors and architects and so on. And the one I'm thinking about is the truth sayer. You need someone who's going to give it to you straight and everybody needs that person in their life. Yeah, absolutely. And would you be able to give an example of where doing it your way has worked for Umbo? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, a really good example is obviously we're here using technology to help connect people in rural communities with clinicians all around Australia. And one of the first bits of advice that I got was you really need to get deep into the technology. You need to understand technology first, so maybe learn coding. And also you should start developing a prototype, which will only cost you 20 grand and, you know, get that going and test it out. And we really resisted that because it, it didn't feel like that was a way to understand, and I guess go back to values. One of my key values is about growth, self-growth, and therefore learning, right? So I didn't feel like this was a way for me to learn in the ways that I wanted to learn and learn about the things that I wanted to learn, which was really yeah. about what are people's problems? You know, where is this inequality coming from? That's more valuable to me than the widget that's going to solve it. So we resisted that, and I think it was the right approach. We just use existing software at the moment, and we hope to develop something in the future, but hopefully to be based upon years of experience rather than just, you know, a couple of months of sitting around thinking about it. I think it's also, I think it's also intuition, isn't it? As, and that kind of helps, and that's that really intangible thing that people that are older and more experienced talk about, that, you know, it's just experience of being in certain places and talking to certain people and, and kind of going, that just doesn't feel right. That one never really felt right to me. Yeah, so... This seems to work particularly well, as you mentioned, with people with experience. But what if for our audiences who may not necessarily have the value structure that they believe in, Mm. and how could they fall back on um, filtering decisions if they don't really know what their values are yet? It's a good question. And I think the the first point to make is that you're never too young to work out what your values are because more than likely they will change. But if you actually sit down and do one of the billion values exercises that are on the internet uh, for free, and then you work off that as a basis to, you know, to, to live, you are miles ahead of the average person because they don't bother doing that bit of hard work. So mm-hmm. I, I, would, I would never say you're too young to do that. Absolutely, you should do it and then update it every few years. But I guess the other bit of um, advice perhaps is to take stock from people who you think have potentially similar values to you and to get them to fact check and acid test everything that you think, you know, and, and there's, there's a real value to having mentors, of course. I also think there's a value to having a mentor that's just a little bit ahead of you, not someone necessarily who's your dad's age or your mum's age, but someone who's maybe five years ahead. And then they can probably tell you something that might be more relevant. Yeah, it's not some sort of complex process to figure out your values. It's, you know, you can find it on the internet and you can ask people about it. Yeah, I think so. And I think a, a lot of, because I also work with university, of course, as I'm teaching and so on. I, I think a lot of the, the younger people that I've been involved with uh, mentoring and teaching, there's a real pressure to have all of the answers. And I don't know, and maybe that's just because I work with people in health sciences who tend to be like that. They want really concrete <laughs> black and white answers. Of course, as you know, William, in entrepreneurship, there's no such thing as a black and white answer. It's all very yeah. gray. Yeah. So one of the things I try and encourage them to do is just to try and let go of that sense of 
fear really of, of, of losing control or fear of not knowing and, and just getting comfortable with the gray and saying, you know, you don't need to have it all kind of sorted out, particularly not at your age. You know, I don't think anyone will ever really have it all sorted out as long as they're alive. Yeah. How do business values and personal values coincide? So we, we have this values-driven approach and with personal values, you might consult mentors, you might look on the internet. How about business values? Are they any different? I think it depends. If you're if you're a founder of a business or you're founder of a charity or any organization, regardless of what you think, the DNA of that company is your DNA, particularly in the first few years and definitely while you're at the helm. And then gradually over time, it might mutate a little bit, but it's definitely your DNA, hopefully, that's breathed life into this thing. So in some senses, they're not the same. And I think, sorry, they're not different. And even when you have multiple founders, as, as I do with Umbo, we have similar values, but I would never say we have exactly the same values, of course, because we're, we're different people, as you might expect. So the, the values of Umbo are an amalgamation of all of our DNAs. And therefore, in some senses, it's like a superhuman because it gets to have a really wide range of um, DNA as opposed to just one person's. And then the decision-making that comes from those values and DNA really is dependent on the founder's um, original values. Would there ever be a, a scenario where your personal values could work against the interests of the business though? So as the, uh, the small example that you mentioned before was that in you know, health sciences, people demand this you know, concrete answer, whereas in entrepreneurship, it's not always like that. So if someone valued trying to really find the answer, but they realize that in the, in the startup, they won't be able to do that. And so they're just beating a dead horse. Hmm. That's, it, it's a really good scenario. And there's a book, I mean, this is specifically now about health sciences, but there's a wonderful book, another book, uh, which I'm recommending called The Entrepreneurial Clinician. If anyone's listening who does have a clinical or health sciences background or even health background, which talks about how we're taught as clinicians to be black and white. And that's completely against the whole idea of being entrepreneurial by a wonderful writer lady called Joe Muirhead. But to go back to the question, so values are often in conflict and it's not necessarily just about your values and the company's, but often the company's values are in conflict. Let's use an example where one of the values of the company is growth and another value is quality. And then you might say, we're going to launch a pilot program. It's going to be pretty mediocre quality, but it's going to help us to grow. Or you might say, we're not going to launch it because we really value quality above growth. So, so how do you make decisions about this kind of stuff? One of the things that I always try to do is, is to rank values. So I put them from top to bottom and then I go through them and say, well, look, if two of them are in conflict, I'm going to go with the one at the top because often they are in conflict. You know, So from a personal point of view, my number one value is authenticity and integrity, which are you know, linked together. So you know, there are other ways in, so you know, I value respect, for example, obviously, and Sometimes that respect dips a little bit or it appears to dip in terms of the way that I, I talk about things because I'd rather be real about it. You know, it's got mm. me in trouble a few times, but, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just part of my value set. Yeah. So if I'm hearing you right, it's just the values, they, they do have, have a ranking where if there's a, some sort of conflict, one has to give way to the other. Yeah. I, I think intuitively they have rankings, but I don't believe many people actually do rank them. Right, So it's to make it really clear. And I think that's where it's really important in a company setting because, of course, it's not just you. You know, you, you do have an internal ranking in your head, but unless you actually write it down for people to see, they won't know how to choose which value is better. 
Yeah, definitely. It reminds me of, of something that one of my mentors once said to me is that as a founder, you have the responsibility to establish the values of the company. And every single day, you're essentially beating the drum of this is what you value and this is what you're trying to achieve. And it lets everyone in the whole company know every single day. Yeah, that's so true. I remember this other bit of research, I think it was done by, it was published on HBR, Harvard Business Review, and it talked about what do CEOs do? You know, and often the CEO is the founder, of course. So what, what do CEOs think that their job is? And 92% of these, these CEOs surveyed in the States, the number one thing they said was to maintain company culture, something like that. So you're absolutely correct that, you, you know, the culture flows from the values and, and your role is really to maintain that by doing lots of things, talking about it, setting a really good example, you know, or everything. And, and there is no one that's more scrutinized in a company than the founder and the leader. So it, it seems unfair, but you're really a very key part of how other people choose to act because they're constantly observing how you're acting. Yeah. How would you deal with doing it your way if there was a conflict internally? So mm. say there are two co-founders, yep. how would that work? Yeah, um, I guess the, the first thing is to is to really try and understand the other person's position with empathy. And that, that kind of comes back to the Stephen Covey approach of, you know, seek first to understand and then to be understood. So tr really trying to understand where that person is coming from. And often in that process of understanding, you often realize that you're actually not as diagonally, diametrically opposed as you might think. There is usually a middle ground, which you'd both be happy with, and then trying to find that middle ground together. I also think it's really important that people don't go straight for consensus straight away, because often in, even in the process of opposing something, considerations and risks are raised, which you can then mediate. You know, So it's not like, you, you, let's say we have proposal A and I propose it to you, William, and you're like, oh no, what about blah, blah, blah. That's actually really valuable because we might still go ahead with proposal A, but it will have mediated a lot of the potential risks that could have come from it. You know, So the other thing I think is also to, you know, this is just everything in life, isn't it? Work out the, the battles and the war, which is more important. So sometimes it's not worth fighting over minor things when it's taking you away from the major thing that really matters you know so knowing what to focus on versus not is really valuable too well thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast today away pleasure yeah that's been really interesting and these are really great questions and hopefully at least i've been able to stimulate some thought around it i don't think anyone actually has black and white answers but they're really good things to think about yeah, definitely. I hope the audience has found what we talked about today on doing it your way and a bit about values incredibly valuable. If you'd like to learn more about Way or about Umbo, feel free to drop us a line on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. Until next time.